Truth Espresso, episode 278. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso, to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hello friends, family, foes, and lurkers alike, this is your host Daniel Minnick, and it is just I because my wife is up in the mountains doing clinical work for some women up there, and so I'm not going to do the next installment in the Jeffrey Epstein series, I figured I'd do that with my sweet, beautiful wife Chelsea. And so I figured I would talk a little bit about the World Economic Forum event gathering in Davos once again this year. And I'm sure there's lots that I could say about this. There's lots that could spin the wheels of people and all kinds of uh, conspiracy theory stuff, whether true or not, of course. But what I'd like mostly to point out about this is the hypocrisy of the people involved in these annual events. So first, before I get to that, if you don't know what the World Economic Forum is, or WEF for short, or as attendees will pronounce it, WEF, the World Economic Forum was founded by a man by the name of Klaus Schwab in 1971. And Klaus Schwab is a professor of business at the University of Geneva, and I think he has also some knowledge in engineering, so we're dealing with a very smart guy here. But this Klaus Schwab in 1971 started the World Economic Forum. It was originally named the European Management Forum, but we know that it didn't take long before other interested parties of other countries that were not in Europe were interested and invited. And so, naturally, it would have to be renamed something like the World Economic Forum. Now, the World Economic Forum is headquartered in Geneva, Switzerland, and they have annual meetings that are normally in mid to late January. Occasionally, something comes up and they have to have an event, say, in August or something, but normally it's in the middle to uh, later part of January. And these annual meetings are by invitation only. They invite powerful people, wealthy people, CEOs of big companies, politicians, renowned professors from Ivy League institutions, and they're all going to gather at Davos where they host these annual meetings. And Davos is basically a mountain resort in the Alpines of Switzerland. And this resort is kind of difficult to access. You can get to it, but for the elites, they're not going to take the conventional way to get there. They're going to fly by private jet. And I do want to talk a little bit about that, too, as part of pointing out hypocrisies of the members and the agenda that they promote at the World Economic Forum meetings. 
And one of the things that Klaus Schwab invented that is often a theme or integrated into the messages of the themes that they will have each year at Davos, at the World Economic Forum annual meeting, is what is called stakeholder capitalism. Now, that term does sound innocuous and perhaps even endearing to people, say, in the United States, if they don't really know what the word stakeholder means. Because, hey, if you use the word capitalism, then, hey, these guys aren't socialists. They don't sound like they're fascists or communists and stuff. They must be capitalists. They just want a better capitalism, you know, like building a better mousetrap. Now, stakeholder capitalism is Klaus Schwab's alternative to shareholder capitalism. Basically, he wants to minimize the effects of capitalism for a publicly traded company as it would focus on maximizing the profits for those who own the company, like the shareholders. They want to see how is the business growing, how are you making money, how are you paying the investors. But stakeholder capitalism wants to minimize that aspect. Maybe it can still be a component of it, but it is kind of subjugated to other facets. Shareholders are not the only stakeholders. We have to figure out who all are the stakeholders of a company. So a company doesn't just have the noble and lofty goal of creating products and services that people want and are willing to pay for it. And by exchanging money for those products and services, both benefit and the company makes profits and grows and stuff. According to stakeholder capitalists, that could be greedy or destructive or narcissistic or something, and it's isolated from all the stakeholders that should be able to get value out of the company without somehow just being part of the capitalist free market operations. A stakeholder isn't just the shareholder. The stakeholder could be a government. It could be what's considered society at large. It could be minority groups. It could be other countries, even if the company isn't doing business there. Stakeholders could be people who are activists in social causes. So what does Klaus Schwab say as he explains it in an excerpt from his book called What is Stakeholder Capitalism? And he provided this excerpt on the World Economic Forum's website on January 22nd, 2021. I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. So Klaus Schwab says in his book, quote, the model is simple, but it immediately reveals why shareholder primacy and state capitalism lead to suboptimal outcomes. They focus on the more granular and exclusive objectives of profits or prosperity in a particular company or country rather than the well-being of all people and the planet as a whole, unquote. If you didn't quite understand what he's saying here, he's saying that the normal, natural function of a business to please the customers is but a small function of what the purpose of the company should be. The company should be some kind of almost like political institution that serves really the entire world, the well-being of all people. Well, you know, I thought that a nonprofit might perform that function. And only, you know, like if you have nonprofits all over the world, they can provide for and serve people within their reach. 
But when it comes to globalists like Klaus Schwab, everything is supposed to function globally and everything is supposed to function according to political ideology and not just quid pro quo, exchanging money for products and services. Although we know that's how poverty got reduced because you have enterprising minds that believe they can serve humanity by working, producing, inventing, selling, providing, exchanging for money, and both sides benefit. But to the ideologues, to the activists, to the globalists, to the elites, that's not enough. Everything has to be political. So in other words, if you really understand what Klaus Schwab is saying, he wants fascism on a global scale. You know, fascism is kind of where you have the public-private enterprise. Uh, Companies aren't free from government. In fact, that they're kind of controlled by government. And so, yeah, the definition of fascism is that business is inseparable from politics and government. And so... To be a globalist like Klaus Schwab and um, many of the people at the World Economic Forum and their agenda is really to promote global fascism. Another thing that Klaus Schwab in particular has talked about is what he calls the Fourth Industrial Revolution. So he divides up the progress of industry into four stages. And the first one was when water and steam and machinery engines were invented. This was in the 18th century. And then the second industrial revolution was where you're getting things like um, the division of labor. You had the invention of electricity and you also had assembly line type of thing where you can produce things quickly. You can do mass production. And then the third industrial revolution involved where you take electricity and you make electronic devices. You also had the invention of the information technology sector and you had factory machines that can run automatically to produce uh, parts and stuff like that. And then the fourth industrial revolution is the digital age. And according to Klaus Schwab and the Fourth Industrial Revolution, what it means, how to respond, from back in 2016, he says, quote, We do not yet know how it, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, will unfold, but one thing is clear. The response to it must be integrated and comprehensive involving all stakeholders of the global polity, from the public and private sectors to academia and civil society, unquote. So when you hear and when you read Klaus Schwab, he says things that sound like cool and innocuous and give you the warm and fuzzies, and they make you feel like, yes, we want the whole world to prosper and let's work together on all this, but... You have to read between the lines because not only does this German guy, as is often said, sound like a James Bond villain, but his plot for the world actually would result in what a James Bond villain might want for the world, to control the world. But think about what he's saying. Somehow the fourth industrial revolution, in his terms, is something that requires different tactics from the first three industrial revolutions. 
So the first three industrial revolutions happened spontaneously through enterprising inventors to improve society. As we uh, see in history, sure, we could find scandals of government involvement and patent fraud and all kinds of stuff, but for the most part, it was a ground-up type of thing. But the fourth industrial revolution, in Schwab's thinking, of course, has to be something that global elites manage and control, kind of from the top down or the center out and stuff like that. Like, it's something that, of course, global polity, as he said, public and private sectors and academia and stuff, civil society, like, it's all going to be controlled by politics and ideology. Like, you can't just enterprise it and enjoy the freedom and advancement of it all. It has to be under political control. And now another thing that is well known, (laughs) you know, if you've heard of the phrase, you will own nothing and be happy. Well, that originally started from a member of the Denmark parliament named Ida Auken, And he wrote an article in 2016 entitled, Welcome to 2030, I Own Nothing, Have No Privacy, and Life Has Never Been Better. And so there's the Agenda 2030, they also have 2050 as another year, like they want to have certain structural things from their ideology in place, mostly then by 2030 and then other things by 2050. So they like to pick years and then talk about how they can get like a checklist of things done for that year. Because, you know, if you're a global central planner, of course, you know, that's what you want to do. And if you've heard of things like, Joe Biden has said that he wants to have like half of all new vehicles sold on the market to be EVs or electric vehicles by 2030. So, you know, 2030 somehow has to be this landmark year to have certain parts of society be transitioned and changed, of course, by global politics. Now, back to the article by Denmark Parliament member Auken, he says in the article, quote, Welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say our city. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. <laughs> yeah. Of course, when you read that, it seems like he's trying to shock you there, but then he'll explain just a little later by what that means. He says, quote, everything you considered a product has now become a service. We have access to transportation, accommodation, food, and all the things we need in our daily lives. One by one, all these things became free. So it ended up not making sense for us to own much, unquote. So... Basically, if you think of renting versus owning, if you're renting an apartment versus owning a house, well, it's trying to say that somehow the economy improves to the point where it's just clutter, it's just overhead, things just wear and tear, you have junk you can't figure out how to get rid of, and so your life is streamlined much better in this hypothetical understanding of 2030 
where you don't really purchase something, you really subscribe to things, you rent things, you like, hey, if I need a new wardrobe, I just pass on my old one to another person who orders it or to some kind of recycling service, and then I just order the clothes I need to change my wardrobe, and it's probably allegedly cheaper because I'm subscribing to a service. I don't really own them. I'm just renting and passing them on the same with the dwelling. You're renting. You're not owning. You don't own your car. You're just leasing or renting it. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds like a utopia in the mind of this guy, but I don't really want that. What spurned on the first three industrial revolutions is the idea that we could own things. Remember feudalism? Only certain elites owned things and everyone else had to work the land that they didn't own. So, hey, I don't want to go back to fiefdom, but uh, the global elites would as long as they're the nobles, they're the lords, and everyone else is a renter who can't build their own power. They just rent things and they're all kind of similar. Alkin continues in his 2016 article, quote, Sometimes I use my bike when I go to see some of my friends, unquote. Now, I think it's interesting that he didn't explain that my bike, was that something that he rented or owned? Do you own that bike, Mr. Alkin? I thought you didn't own anything. And he continues, quote, Once in a while I get annoyed by the fact that I have no real privacy, nowhere I can go and not be registered. I know that somewhere everything I do, think, and dream of is recorded. I just hope that nobody will use it against me, unquote. Hey, at least he admits it, but he acts like, of course, everyone's going to have that concern, but hey, you know, the world is so great, you shouldn't care because it's all in good hands, right? Yeah, I don't want a 2030 like that. You know, I don't want six years from now to look like that. We want to restore more privacy, not less. More privacy from government wanting to get their tentacles into everything you do with your life and all your transactions and all that. So, this is an exemplar of the thinking of people who are involved in World Economic Forum. Now, after all that out of the way to get you to kind of be familiar with some of the overarching ideas... Every annual meeting, they have a different theme, but they all kind of have these central ideas. Now, to get into this particular year, uh, year 2024, the WEF's theme was Rebuilding Trust in the Future. I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. Now, just as an aside, 2013's theme was building trust. So this year, because of all that's transpired and it's like 2016, you had the unexpected election of uh, President Trump. And then you have all this <laughs> antagonism and all these battles between Trump and his supporters versus a lot of the other powers that be. And they cannot stand the fact that Hillary Clinton wasn't crowned Queen of America in 2016. But so now we've got to rebuild trust in the future, especially since 2020. The theme that was planned out of that was called the Great Reset. 
And yeah, you've probably heard of that term. And of course, uh, social media has to flag anything that mentions the Great Reset with an article trying to explain it that this was the theme of one year of the World Economic Forum's meetings. It's not a particular plan to make you live in a box and have everything delivered and not allow you to travel and want you to eat bugs and not meat and stuff like all the conspiracy theories you might think of. That was just one year's theme, so knock it off with calling things the Great Reset. But nevertheless, the theme for this year is called Rebuilding Trust because apparently since the pandemic of 2020 and as we've gotten past that and of course memories are short and stuff, they want to make sure that we can build trust in higher institutions and media and governments and stakeholders and because um, there seems to be a lot of decentralization going on There's a lot of power grabs, but there's a lot of strife over power, and there's a lot of challenges in the midst of power grabs to pry the hands off of it. My name is Andy Olson, and I want to tell you about Echozoi Radio. Echozoi Radio is a podcast outreach of Echozoi Ministries. Every month I find a knowledgeable guest to talk about an important and interesting topic that affects the church today. We carefully balance the discussions of positive, God-glorifying doctrines of Orthodox Christianity from a mostly Reformed point of view with exposés of heresy, false teaching, and poor practice that goes on throughout the church today. You can find us at echozoe.com. That's E-C-H-O-Z-O-E.com. And so this is now where I want to get into the hypocrisy of the World Economic Forum and those elites who attend it starting off with the theme for this year called Rebuilding Trust. So let's talk about trust here. So on January 16th, WEF, the World Economic Forum, posted um, the article with their theme, Davos 2024, Rebuilding Trust in the Future. I'll provide a link to that in the show notes. And the summary article says, quote, After an era that lifted a billion people out of poverty and improved living standards everywhere, the anxiety about losing control over what lies ahead is pushing people towards embracing extreme ideologies and the leaders who champion them, unquote. Now, they don't name any names, but I think that whether someone is allied with these people or whether they're against these people and against this ideology, you could probably figure out what they're talking about here. They probably have a certain former president in mind who's also currently running to be elected in 2024. They probably have things like Christianity. They probably have things like those who believe in individual freedom and are against globalists having their mitts on our livelihoods. Like all of that, you know, that's extreme ideologies and the leaders who champion them. Of course, they don't want to name names because they want to sound innocuous, but we can figure out what they're talking about there. And now, more for rebuilding trust, the WEF released a report. They release this Global Risks Report every year. So this one is the 19th edition for 2024. So the Global Risks Report 2024 by the World Economic Forum, in Chapter 1.3, entitled False Information, it says, quote, A growing distrust of information 
as well as media and governments as sources, will deepen polarized views, a vicious cycle that can trigger civil unrest and possibly confrontation, unquote. So let's think about this. Let's think about the American Revolution. Let's think of the First Amendment, freedom of speech. We think about how under the rule of King George, where people who wanted to get their opinions would have to print their opinions and smuggle them, and the king didn't like information that wasn't sanctioned by the regime there. And, of course, possibly civil unrest and confrontation. What's that, like a revolution or something? You know, like, hey, if you don't want this kind of revolution, stop trying to control people with your globalist ideologies. Now, I'm not in any way advocating violence or anything. All I'm saying is that if you don't want people to resort to that kind of thing, stop trying to control their lives and control the flow of information. But they're saying a growing distrust of information and the media and government as sources, somehow that's important to prevent polarized views. Hey, people are different. Their experiences are different. Look, as a Christian, a presuppositionalist, I believe that there is ultimately one truth and that the Bible is the source of ultimate truth. But I believe it's okay for people to have polarized views as long as they're not trying to use tyranny to impose their view on other people. Now, why is there this concern on the part of the globalist elite about what they call false information and a growing distrust of information and that somehow we need, there's a distrust of media and governments as sources? Well, let me count the ways. Recently, why do people have a distrust? What about things like the Hunter Biden laptop? You know, when the New York Post revealed that it was silenced for months after they tried to release an article showing that Hunter Biden's laptop was recovered and there was all kinds of stuff on it that could really harm Biden's campaign, uh, Joe Biden's campaign. And what about the 51 Intel officials signing a letter claiming that the laptop was Russian disinformation? only for us to find out later that it was a big fat lie. And what about Twitter at the time and Facebook and YouTube and other social media platforms censoring people for talking about it? And all of this was literally an October surprise out of desperation to keep a huge scandal from preventing the election of the current man in the White House. And now we have officials admitting that this was indeed Hunter Biden's laptop. Yeah, (laughs) it wasn't Russian interference and disinformation. What about what we're learning or, you know, in many cases already knew, but just enjoy the confirmation about pandemic measures that were foisted on the entire world? What about the lab leak theory, how it was called a conspiracy theory and how it was silenced early on? And now it seems to be the most accepted theory rather than the wet market for the Wuhan virus. And Dr. Anthony Fauci admitted that the social distancing rule of six feet was just made up. He also conveniently didn't recall, I don't recall, a lot of pertinent information. You know, it sounds a lot like Bill Clinton 
in his deposition in the Missouri versus Biden case uh, last year and in his two-day deposition before the House Oversight Committee. Or I think the Missouri versus Biden might have been in 2022 when he was deposed. Also, remember the article in The Atlantic in October 22 when a lot of stuff about the pandemic mitigation measures was coming to light and how things like lockdowns were ineffective at best and destructive at worst and how the jabs didn't prevent the spread or they went from keeping you from getting the virus, you know, you just need one jab and you're immune, to, well, your chances of ending up in the hospital or dying from it might be slightly reduced trust us get the jab and the writer of the article in the atlantic admits that those who resisted the tyranny and the stockholm syndrome of it all and did not trust the elites just so happened to be right about a lot of it when the dust settled and the writer who had joined the frenzy of the tyranny asked us all to grant people a pandemic amnesty as if we're all supposed to forgive and forget when these same people a year prior verbally treated us as subhuman and wanted to cast us out of society and deny us any life-saving medical treatment if we didn't do their rain dance and perform the sacrament of getting the precious jab and follow their religion of trust the science. Insert registered trademark symbol there. All of that, like, hey, if you don't get the jab, I, you know, I wish these people would just die. Like, we heard lots and lots of that, and we had to put up with that and shrug it off. And, you know, I think the government needs to make sure that people who don't get the jab or wear masks and stuff like that, they shouldn't even be allowed in any hospital. No doctor should care for them. They should be ostracized from society and just let them rot and die, you know. <laughs> And then, oh, uh, give us some pandemic amnesty, please. So, yeah, let's talk about rebuilding trust here. So we need to repair the perceived problem of polarization because of a growing distrust of information, especially from media and governments as sources. Just think of the hubris there. Put that into the mouth of Hitler or Mussolini or Mao Zedong or Pol Pot or any other tin pot dictator and most people would recoil in horror. Can someone tell me why I am supposed to trust governments and their collusive media organizations when people throughout history have suffered under regimes where those in control have been petty narcissistic dictators? And no, the correct answer isn't, well, they were bad, but these people are good. (laughs) It doesn't matter what you think about that. Virtually anyone could be corrupted if they're not already corrupted by power. But somehow these elitist stakeholders can say this and we're supposed to get warm fuzzies because, well, they're the good guys. After all, we need to rebuild trust. And so the first hypocrisy thing to note about the uh, World Economic Forum is rebuilding trust. Now, the second one I want to get into, and yeah, I'm going to have to handle this one as discreetly as I can, but it's called escort services. So every year when Davos has their annual meeting where all these elites come, 
certain services called escort services that normally involve young women, probably late teenagers and up to early 30s or so. They're called escort services, and this is also what we call the oldest profession in the world. Now, if you don't know what that means, basically, (laughs) you pay money for them to give you intimacy. (laughs) So, to be blunt, prostitution. And every year, there are always media articles, mostly by independent journalists who will note, because the World Economic Forum doesn't advertise this at all, but it's well known to anyone who even just looks at records. According to the messenger.com, there's an article that's called Escort Services Sell Out at Davos as Finance Leaders Gather at World Economic Forum. Last year, one by a Greek reporter is entitled, Demand for Escort Services Rockets During WEF Summit at Davos. There's an article from Valuetainment that explains that every year for decades, booking for escort services in this area of Switzerland goes to the moon during the days the elites meet at Davos. And it says, Quote, thanks to the world's elite, there are currently no, um, and it names the company, I'm not going to give the name of it because it has a kind of a naughty word in the name of it. There are currently no company escorts available in the entirety of eastern Switzerland, unquote. There's a particular company that offers these escort services and they advertise to the elites who meet at Davos and Every single year for decades, the services get booked up (laughs) during these meetings. I've heard that it was like anywhere from four hours to 12 hours of a service. And um, for some of these escorts, and if you do the full 12 hours, that can charge up to $2,300 per night. But of course, these are people with money, so they're going to use their money for the best bang for their buck. Now, I think it's worthwhile quoting Ronald Reagan, who said, quote, It has been said that politics is the second oldest profession. I have learned that it bears a striking resemblance to the first, unquote. So, the first oldest profession in the world, of course, is escort services, and politics is the second, and it bears a striking resemblance. Well, he called it for sure. These are people, these elites who gather there, think that they're the ones who are the most virtuous in the world to tell the whole world how we're supposed to run our lives, how they're supposed to, as representatives, as stakeholders, to be able to control our lives. Yet, hypocritically, they're living high on the hog in debauchery and making use of escort services every single year that they meet at Davos. Now the Bible says in Leviticus 19.29, Do not prostitute thy daughter to cause her to be a whore, lest the land fall to whoredom and the land become full of wickedness. And of course you know that the Davos people, most of them there, probably don't really care if the whole world becomes full of wickedness. You know, there is no vice in any of that. The only vice is not following their ideology, their economic and political ideologies. 
Would you help with a donation to Striving for Eternity? Let me let you know what your donation helps with. We travel overseas to places like Canada, to the Philippines, elsewhere, to go and preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to teach people where they don't have as much opportunity as we have here in America. We go all over the country to be able to preach and teach, to teach people how to interpret God's Word. So when they open God's Word and handle it for themselves, they know how to accurately handle God's Word. That's the heart we have. We want to be about discipling God's children. If you give a donation, regardless of any amount, we would be very grateful. But we'd also like to bless you. So if you give a donation of $2, we are going to give you a free copy of What Do We Believe, a book that I had wrote about the Christian theology. If you give a donation of $5 a month, we will give you that book that I mentioned, plus What Do They Believe, which is a book I wrote about world religions. If you're willing to give $10 a month, we will give you the two books mentioned, plus On the Origin of Kinds, a book Dr. Anthony Silvestro wrote that deals with evangelism, presuppositional apologetics, and creation science all put together so you see how to use them. If you give a donation of $20 a month, we will give you the three books mentioned plus the book Sharing the Good News with Mormons. 24 different authors giving 24 different ways to evangelize the Mormons, but many of them work for just evangelism period and are great tactics to use. We would greatly appreciate a donation of $25 a month, and what we would look to do with that is give it away. If you give us $25, we're going to seek to give away $25 as part of our ministry as the Christian podcast community. And Striving for Eternity wants to help get missionaries to get their mission out. So if you give us $25 a month, we are going to commit to trying to look for missionaries that we can give them podcasting equipment and hosting so that they would be able to get their message of what they're doing on the mission field to their supporting churches. Rather than sending a a letter that is a mission report that many people don't read, but they'll listen to a podcast. And when the missionary is at that church, man, they're going to say, hey, listen to my podcast. People will subscribe. And then they're going to hear in the missionary's own voice what's going on. Instead of when the missionary comes to town and they show pictures of people you don't know, no, it's different when you've heard the missionary say, I led this person to Christ. I've been discipling this person. This is what's happening with this person. And now you see the picture. Oh, what a joy it is. Now, if you could do more than that, we certainly will not turn it away, and you'll still get the four books. We are in need of your support. We value the money donated to us, and if we have provided value to you, may you consider helping us to help others. It would be greatly appreciated. Just go to strivingforeternity.org donate to donate today. Thank you for considering it. The second hypocrisy of the WEF of Davos is escort services. And now the third one is their environmental footprint. Because the people at Davos frequently like to talk about green plans. They want to reduce, ultimately eliminate the use of fossil fuels. They want to talk about a climate crisis, climate change climate justice 
and John Kerry, who formerly ran for president against George W. Bush for 2004. He's Joe Biden's climate czar. Now, an article in The Guardian entitled Private Jet Emissions Quadrupled During Davos 2024 talks about how a lot of the elites take private jets to the meeting at Davos. And when they do that, this is the single most polluting time period every year. Helena Horton, the author of this article, says, quote, Private jet emissions quadrupled as 1,040 planes flew in and out of airports serving Davos during the 2022 World Economic Forum WEF meeting. Climate campaigners accused the rich and powerful of hypocrisy in flying in on private jets to a conference discussing climate breakdown, unquote. Uh, yeah, so, <laughs> I mean, I think the writer of this article does follow green ideology, but is pointing out the hypocrisy of the WF elites who preach this green message, but don't practice what they preach. Many of them have a tendency to fly on private jets, not only to the annual event at Davos, but at other events throughout the year. So they're the ones who pollute the most, and yet they're going to look down their noses and lecture us about how much we pollute. Further from the article, quote, of the flights to airports near Davos last year, 53% were short-haul flights of less than 750 kilometers, or 466 miles, which could have been done by rail or car, while 38% were over distances of less than 500 kilometers. The shortest flight recorded was just 13 miles, unquote. So imagine that. We who might hop in the car to drive 13 miles somewhere, they took a, you know, the shortest recorded flight to Davos was the very convenient hop on a private jet just to travel 13 miles. And that pollutes multiple, multiple times more than a private car or even a commercial jet where most people fly more than 13 miles. Now, another article talking about the hypocrisy of the private jets by Jack Graham for this year is, quote, as leaders fly to Davos, how do private jets fuel climate change, unquote. This is from Context. And Mr. Graham says, quote, a private jet can emit two tons of CO2 in an hour, equivalent to a few months of the average person's greenhouse gas emissions in the European Union, according to the European NGO Transport and Environment, T&E, unquote. <laughs> Yeah, so those who act like they're going to save the planet and preach climate change, they're the biggest culprits of pollution out of their own convenience. Now, there are calls from green activists to ban private jets, but of course, I don't think that's the solution when we observe the hypocrisy here. How about we just knock off the climate change agenda? And people wouldn't have to meet in Davos to preach it and pollute the air in the process. How about we start saving the planet by getting rid of the World Economic Forum meetings at Davos? Yeah, that would be a start. If not, just get rid of the private jet travel that dignitaries use to get to the summit. Let the elites lead by example. <laughs> what a thought there. 
Now, I want to play a short clip from uh, John Kerry in one of his speeches at this year's World Economic Forum. We got 195 countries to all agree to buy into the notion that we have to transition away from fossil fuels and we have to do so in accordance with the science. We have to do so meeting the goal of 2050 net zero and we have to do so accelerating those efforts now in this decade. That's the conclusion and the operative language. Okay, so he's all giddy about how many countries are getting in on this uh, plan and to get to net zero. But then a reporter also grilled him on his hypocrisy. Listen to this clip. What's the carbon footprint of these events every single year that you come here? You think it's worth it? Peasants pay for your crimes? That's a stupid question. Is it, a, is it really? We're done. We're done. We are done now. Don't grab me. Why do you think you're more important? Your carbon footprint doesn't matter, but everybody else around the world suggested that. Nobody ever suggested that. Don't make up stupid questions. <laughs> yeah, that's just great. I mean, <laughs> someone points out your hypocrisy, Mr. Carey, and you tell them that's a dumb question. It's not a dumb question. It's a perfectly reasonable question. And John Kerry's a known offender of the crime that he preaches against because he frequently flies on private jets. But somehow he thinks that it's perfectly okay for him to do it because he's going to save the climate from the aggregate of all of us, all of us together. To live out our normal lives and travel to meet family and travel for business and earn a living for our families and stuff like that. We have to be subjugated to his plans while he gets to enjoy the privileges of flying on private jets for short distances or going to meetings where he's going to speak about climate justice and he's going to go to the World Economic Forum on a private jet. And of course, I'm sure he probably takes advantage of the escort services too. And he's going to preach that we need to rebuild trust in government. You know, it's kind of hard to trust an elitist hypocrite like that. So I think the scriptures have a good answer to that. As Jesus gave in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. So think of people like John Kerry and possibly many of the other elite at the Davos Summit when Jesus told his disciples, Judge not that ye be not judged, for with what judgment ye judge, ye shall be judged, and with what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. <laughs> Wait, that's a dumb question, right? <laughs> And why beholdest thou the mote that is in thy brother's eye, but considerest not the beam that is in thine own eye? Or how wilt thou say to thy brother, Let me pull out the mote out of thine eye, and behold, a beam is in thine own eye? Thou hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of thine own eye, and then shalt thou see clearly to cast out the mote out of thy brother's eye. And so this is a perfect example of understanding hypocrisy. 
people like John Kerry have a huge beam or plank or log in their eye while they want to preach to the rest of us that somehow we all have a moat or a speck or a splinter in our eye and he wants to remove that. He's going to preach about how he's going to help and his elites at Davos are going to remove the moat out of our eyes because of how bad we are. All the while, he's standing there with a huge log in his eye, and his response is, that's a dumb question. Get out of the way. Who are you to ask me that question? I'm John Kerry. Do you know who I am? You have no right to question me and act in any way like you can trap me. So, I want you to think about that. If there is any temptation to think about the World Economic Forum as a bunch of altruistic leaders of business and academia and politicians who are simply gathering together to improve the world? Well, we've seen three examples of hypocrisy from them. And hypocrisy is not a good aspect of any leader. And I think as we all promote freedom in our own understanding, and as we all read our Bibles as we all serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And I know we're all fallen. I know everyone experiences hypocrisy to some level, of course. The point is that we all need to work on not being hypocrites ourselves and that we should all strive to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and preach the gospel and preach the truth. And no truth is not determined by the particular organization or outlet or something that government can control. Truth comes from the word of God, from Jesus Christ, from God. And I know we all look forward to the day when Jesus Christ will descend and return and he will right the wrongs and he will be the perfect leader. And he will not be a hypocrite and that there will be righteousness. And so as we long for that day, let's not be escapists. Let's not just bunker under. Let's speak the truth. Let's expose the hypocrites. Let's occupy till he come. Let's speak truth and let's try to make the world a better place in terms of biblical righteousness as much as we can while we await Christ's return. And now just as a little bit of an example of someone who is trying to fight for some modicum of truth here, I just want to quick play some clips from one of the speakers at the World Economic Forum who didn't hold to the same beliefs that they did, and that is none other than the newly elected president of Argentina, Javier Millet. Now, he does have some character flaws, of course. But his understanding of freedom and economy is diametrically opposed. And so it was a breath of fresh air to see his speech at the World Economic Forum in Davos that seemed to come right out of a textbook, as it were, by the likes of Frederick Hayek or Ludwig von Mises, like The Road to Serfdom. And so here's a clip of when Javier Millet began his speech. Good afternoon. Thank you very much. 
Today, I'm here to tell you that the Western world is in danger. And it is endangered because those who are supposed to have to defend the values of the West are co-opted by a vision of the world that inexorably leads to socialism and thereby to poverty. Unfortunately, in recent decades, motivated by some well-meaning individuals willing to help others, and others motivated by the wish to belong to a privileged caste, the main leaders of the Western world have abandoned the model of freedom for different versions of what we call collectivism. We're here to tell you that collectivist experiments are never the solution to the problems that afflict the citizens of the world. Rather, they are the root cause. Do believe me, no one better place than us, Argentines, to testify to these two points. Yes, good points there, Mr. Millet. And as the president of a country that had experienced socialistic poverty for 80 years, and he's trying to turn it around and turn it back to the freedom it once had and the kind of freedom that the United States once celebrated, he does stand in a position to warn that the West is indeed in danger. And as people look starry-eyed and glassy-eyed at the ideas of the World Economic Forum, Mr. Millet is warning them not to be tricked and not to be lulled into sleep sleep and not to embrace these ideas that seem, as he said, well-meaning, but end up putting the whole West into a modern form of socialism and, also, and ultimately to grind them into poverty, even as it presents the ideas in a way that makes it sound like it's going to be some technological, convenient utopia. And now I want to play Millet's concluding remarks. Therefore, in concluding, I would like to leave a message for all business people here and for those who are not here in person but are following from around the world. Do not be intimidated, intimidated either by the political caste or by parasites who live off the state. Do not surrender to a political class that only wants to stay in power and retain its privileges. You are social benefactors. You're heroes. You're the creators of the most extraordinary period of prosperity we've ever seen. Let no one tell you that your ambition is immoral. If you make money, it's because you offer a better product at a better price, thereby contributing to general well-being. Do not surrender to the advance of the state. The state is not the solution. The state is the problem itself. You are the true protagonists of this story. And rest assured that as from today, Argentina is your staunch, unconditional ally. Thank you very much and long live freedom. And so Mr. Malay gave his speech there at Davos with a bang, and I'm sure quite a few of them were cringing while trying to smile after he gave that speech, basically denouncing every intention that all the other elites had there at the time. And so I wish that some of the representatives there at Davos from the good old U.S. of A. would have sounded more like Javier Malay. Because we used to have a lot of good thinkers that actually thought about freedom and prosperity that way. But I'll take what I can get. And I'm glad that Argentina has a president, even with his character flaws, 
who sees the problems and is trying to correct them. And I don't think any other year of the Davos meeting had a speech like this. So maybe we're seeing a turning point here. Maybe there will be more like that the next year. We shall see. And so I think that there is some hope in the darkness. But of course, we must put our trust in Jesus Christ and not in world leaders. And so I hope that you enjoyed this episode of Truth Espresso and stay tuned for more. And God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.